back to your left, you'll find yourself in the book of Kings. But first Kings chapter five. God's word says, Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in the place of his father, David. For Hiram had always loved David, and Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune, and so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now therefore command the cedars of Lebanon to be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have heard the message that you have sent to me. I am ready to do all you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servants shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you direct. And I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it. And you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired, while Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year, and the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in ships. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country, besides Solomon, 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. At the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gebel did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. Let's pray. Our Lord, this is your word. Would you let it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path as we seek to honor you with our lives. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, it was July 1859 and tensions were rising again between Britain and France. The British were opposed to the French interference in Italy and they were striving to stop what they were doing, and people were hoping that someone could de-escalate the rising tension. That something was two men, the British Richard Cobden and the French Michael Chevalier. These two men were not generals, but rather they were economists. They were politicians, and they met for several months and worked on a trade deal to almost completely reduce tariffs and open their borders for mostly free trade. This was not easily done when the British Cobden first talked with the French Emperor Napoleon III. The emperor was interested, but he said, 
It is very difficult in France to make reforms. We make revolutions in France, not reforms. Yet, the Cobden-Chevalier Treaty did get signed in 1860, and within a decade, the British had doubled their exports to Europe. More importantly, this free trade agreement diminished the rising tensions between the countries. This was the first free trade agreement that people were of, and it led to many others in the region, though they didn't all last. But these men, Cobden and Chevalier, were able to use their wisdom to draft something that led to peace and to prosperity for millions of people. They were wise in crafting trade deals. Well, knowing how to create deals so that everyone involved benefits takes wisdom. And that's what we see here this morning, that Solomon was a mastermind. He was a master of knowing how to do many things. And this morning we see, again, he was a mastermind of political dealing. And we see he was a mastermind because he was given his mind by the master. As we look at this chapter, if you have a bulletin, you can see the three points in this chapter. First, we're going to see that Solomon has wise international policy. Second, we see he has this because it was God's giving of wisdom to him first. And then third in this chapter, we see Solomon's lavish temple preparation. As you read the Bible, it's always helpful to remember the chapter divisions are not original. Originally, this was one long continuing narrative. And if you back up one verse in chapter 4, you can kind of see this. If you read with me, chapter 4, verse 34, And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Now Hiram, king of Tyre. So what it's saying is, look, it tells this general statement of Solomon's wisdom, of people coming to him, and then it gives this specific example of how that wisdom was played out. And that's what's going on here in chapter 5. Now Tyre was the capital of Phoenicia, a nation to the north. And they had a mainland base, but they also had an island in the Mediterranean Sea. And as Mediterranean sailors, they were in stiff competition with Philistine sailors. So when King David, Solomon's father, defeated the Philistines, it was very natural for the Tyronians, the Phoenicians, to be excited, to go, great, now that the Philistines are defeated by David, we will be able to rule the seas. And so King Hiram of Tyre sent to David gifts. We read of it, some of it earlier, because it, we saw that David was given this house of cedar. Second Samuel 5, 11 says, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. Hiram was so excited that he had defeated the Philistines that he wanted to thank him. He wanted to enter into an agreement. And so he is now wanting to continue this with Solomon. And Solomon responds to this letter in verses 2 and 3. Interestingly, he says, look, yes, David desired to build a house for God, and now I'm going to want to do that as well. And we know that this was not just something that Solomon came up with, as was read earlier in the service, 2 Samuel 7, David wanted to build a house for God. That's an interesting play here, because why did David want to build a house for God? Well, because he had cedar for his own house. Well, where did the cedar from his own house come from? It came from Hiram. So it's kind of going back in a circle. But nonetheless, as we read earlier, 
Though at first the prophet Nathan told David, go do whatever is in your heart, God then spoke to Nathan that night and told him to go tell David that you won't build a house for me. You're a man of war, but after you will rise up your son who will build this house for me. Not only that, but God promised David that this king would have peace and that through this son, a house would be built for David, built for him by God. And Solomon here is recalling all this to Hiram and how God has fulfilled all these promises. God fulfilled the promise that through David, there is now peace in the kingdom and all their enemies are subdued. But notice Solomon's humility in this. He talks about how the Lord has put them under the soles of his feet. Solomon is recognizing it wasn't David's military ingenious. It wasn't David's military strength. It wasn't my wise international diplomacy. God is the one who has brought us peace. As Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The Lord is the one who causes all things to happen. Thus, Solomon says, verse 4, that due to God, he has rest on all sides. There are no battles, there are no calamities. But notice something very interesting in verse 4. He says, but now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. He doesn't just say the Lord, David's God, or not just the Lord, the God of Israel, He says, the Lord, my God. And that's something we all have to come to terms with. Is the Lord my God? Not just the God of my parents, not just the God of the church I attend to, but do I personally trust the Lord? Have you personally come to trust him? Not do you just hold to the right doctrines, but do you, can you say, the Lord is my shepherd? that you have personally come to trust him. Is he your God? And so Solomon goes on, he's saying, now, because of this peace, because of God's promise, he is going to build a house for the name of the Lord. Just as God had promised, David's son will build this temple. And so in light of all this, Solomon says, will you, Hiram, cut down the cedars of Lebanon and send them to me? Well, this is exactly what Hiram had been willing to do before, And so he can expect that Hiram will respond positively. Not only does Solomon make this request, but he also says, and I will pay. I'll give you whatever you want to to pay for this. And Solomon wants this, he says, because these are the best trees. And no one cuts them down like the Sidonians. The Sidonians were famous woodcutters in the way that the Swiss are known for their watches. The Italians for their food, the Belgians for their chocolate, America for fast food. I don't know, we were good for something. They were known for greatness. Hey, we want the Sidonians. Can you, they're going to cut it. Oh, they cut wood so perfectly. And the the cedar of Lebanon, that's what we want. Solomon is wanting the best because this is for the Lord. And this passage shows us that Solomon's ability to construct the temple is built on God's promise that God's son would build him. As Dale Davis writes, the real foundation of the temple does not consist of huge blocks of stone. The temple rests on the promises of God. 
The same idea needs to be placed firmly in our minds. What are you building on? Are you building on the promises of God? Right now, it's easy for many Christians to look in fear as they look at politicians or policies that may come in place, and they're driven by those rather than the promises of God. The promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. That we go forth to serve King Jesus, knowing that no weapon that is fashioned against us shall stand. He promises to build his church. Are you counting on that promise? Jesus said he will have people worship him from every single tongue, tribe, and nation. That's a promise that has not yet occurred. So may we go forward knowing that he has more sheep that he is going to draw in. In Acts 18, Paul felt encouraged to stay and continue to labor in Corinth because he's told by God, I have many more in this city who are my people. He was encouraged because he knew God had more people. God still has more people on this earth. The fields are white for harvest. So Christian, like Solomon, let us not go forth in fear, but let us base our life on the promises of God, that he is still working, and that we can still go forth boldly, courageously, knowing that his promises will stand. Well, Solomon's words and actions, they delight Hiram. And as we see, this is because of God's giving him wisdom. We see this in verses 7 through 12, God's giving of wisdom. So verse 7, Hiram hears Solomon's response, and he praises God. He says, wow, God, you should be blessed for giving David such a wise son. Ecclesiastes 2 is telling of a despairing father who's worked and worked, and then he goes, but what will my son be like? Maybe I have built all this, and my son's going to be a fool, and he's going to destroy it all. Well, the irony is Ecclesiastes 2 is by Solomon, who has a foolish son who destroys it all, and he is the wise son who was given something and built upon it. But besides that irony, here we're seeing that Solomon is that blessed son to David because what David built, all the peace he secured, all the things he made for the temple, Solomon is now bringing in. And so Hiram is blessing God because of this. Not only does he bless God, but he agrees with the main ideas of Solomon's request. He does word some things differently. He adds cypress trees to cedars. He says, look, how about we bring them down the coast and then your men will come. But nonetheless, they basically agree. You're going to give us the wood, we're going to give you the wood, and you'll give us rewards in it. In this case, large amounts of food for their households. But there's really a verbal wordplay going on in verses 10 through 12. The beginning of verse 10, it says, So Hiram supplied. But yet the word supplied is the same Hebrew word used. It's give. So it's Solomon. So Hiram gave Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired. While Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil, Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year. And so it's using this word, give, 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 over and over. And then it emphasized, verse 12, and the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. All of the giving back and forth between Hiram and Solomon is because of a prior gift. 
It was the gift of God promised to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3 of the wisdom that Solomon asked for. And because Solomon was gifted with this wisdom from the Lord, there can be this international diplomacy that sends gifts back and forth and blesses each other. We've seen over and over God's gift of wisdom to Solomon. We saw it initially in chapter 3 where he dealt wisely in the two women in the court case. Then in chapter 4 in how he ordered his kingdom that then led to peace and prosperity for the nation. We saw also in chapter 4 his wisdom was so great, it was greater than all the other regions, greater than the wisest men they knew. He is so wise, it was wide and varied. He knew of the largest trees and the smallest shrub. He knew of all the types of animals in God's world. And now added to that wisdom is how to make plans, fulfill projects, and make deals. And I think this section here gives us three things. It gives us an important implication, an application, and a foreshadowing. The first implication deals with economics, or if that's an odd word, it deals with how do we get things back and forth between people. And from this story, I think Solomon is showing us what loving economics looks like. Notice here that Solomon makes a deal that benefits both people. He doesn't say, hey, Hiram, I just want you to know I'm the biggest, baddest king around, and I better get some cedar pretty quick, or else my troops are coming. He says, hey, you got wonderful stuff. We've been friends, and I got wonderful stuff. Let's exchange. And they're both happy from it. That is loving business. Now imagine you're a little pig farmer, but you want these to become big pigs, and when these big pigs grow, you make the best ham. But you have one problem being a pig farmer. Pigs don't build the best houses. Start to smell bad after a while. But your neighbor has really good trees, but he doesn't know how to raise pigs. So you give him pigs, and he gives you trees, and you're both happy. It's loving business. Or to go to our day, you have money, and the store has goods, and they very happily take your money. And in America, you happily take the goods. You only buy what you want. It's a great exchange of ideas, of possessions. Both people are happy. Now, that may seem obvious. You know, well, what? I mean, of course, that's what we do all the time. But what happens when you have a person in need and they need $100 or else they're going to owe more money. Many people say, well, I'll give you 100 but you better give me 150 back. And they press them because they know they're in trouble. And so they take advantage of them. Now, is that illegal? No. But is it loving? And we should always seek what's mutually beneficial to both people. To make this even less abstract, what are the economics of trade in your home there's one tv but two different shows that want to be watched there's one new toy but three children who want to play with it and maybe a parent often parents try and resolve these issues like oh, okay well this is easy just give everyone their own tv just give everyone their own toy except eventually you're going to get to a place where you can't get everyone what they want what are you going to do then? And so as parents, we have to at times say, I'm not giving you what you want because you need to learn the, and you probably wouldn't be as weird as me and say it this way, the economics of loving trade. You need to learn to share 
Well, it's the same idea. You need to learn, hey, I don't have to take advantage of you. I'm bigger. Yeah, I can get the toy. No. How about we work out a compromise where we both get what we want, where we both benefit from it. You know, often people think of life as a zero-sum game. Either you get it or I get it. But biblical idea is love, where we both benefit. We both leave and go, I'm happy with what happened. Not, boy, they really took me over the coals. I couldn't do anything else. But they're bigger, they're stronger, so i got to go along. But no, even in our strength, as Solomon does, he says, I'll give you what you want, even though I could get it without that. Well, that's an implication, but an important application from this is to realize that everything you have is given to you by God. Solomon has wisdom because God gave it to him. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? Now, this does not mean we go around saying, I don't have any talents. I can't do anything. Rather, it means that we realize any talent, any knowledge, any skill, any possession we have was first from God. And yet, we tend to internally boast. We think things like, boy, glad I'm not like them. I work for a living. I'm not living off the government. Can you believe their physical appearance? If they took care of their body like me, they wouldn't look like that. Look at their kids. When I'm a parent, I'll never do that. Famous last words. Nonetheless, we internally are often having this boasting, well, I'm glad I'm not like them. And we're thinking we are great. And yet if we care for our body as we should, if we work as we should, if we raise our children right, as we should, and are all good things, not denying that, we should thank God that he gave us those desires and abilities and thoughts. Thank you, God, that you gave me a desire to go to work. Thank you, God, that you helped me to not want to let my kids do whatever we want, but go through the hard process of discipline. You gave that desire to me, and you have been gracious to me. It is not me. That's why Paul exhorts us in Galatians 6, Far be it from me to boast in anything except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, all I deserve is punishment from God. And yet God, rather than giving me punishment, gives me good things. So any good thing, any good thought, any good skill, any good possession, it's because of the cross. Otherwise, all I would get from God is punishment. And so every single good gift is really boasting that Jesus died for you. It's why we sing, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. So this section has shown us an implication. We should have loving economics, an application. We shouldn't be boasting. We should be boast, shouldn't be boasting in ourselves. We should be boasting in Christ. And third, there's a wonderful foreshadowing here. It's foreshadowing the promises of Isaiah. Isaiah 43, sorry, 45, verse 23 that says, To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Or Isaiah 60, 4 through 5. 
Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you and the wealth of the nations shall come to you. These promises are given to a people in exile and they're saying, like when Hiram came, brought the wealth of the nations who praised the God of Israel, one day all nations will come and worship God in Jerusalem. They will all come and this is a small foretaste of that and so the statement of god giving solomon wisdom serves as a really kind of a bridge because it's showing approval of solomon's treaty with hiram and then it's also giving approval of the preparations for the temple which we see lastly in our third section solomon's lavish temple preparations verses 13 through 18 solomon's lavish temple preparations Because beginning of verse 13, the passage details how Solomon enables this massive building construction. And it begins with him drafting into labor 30,000 men from all Israel. Now when you compare this with chapter 9, verses 15 through 23, it becomes clear that the 30,000 from all Israel is referring from all the geography of Israel, not all the people of Israel, because the people who are laborers are not Israelites. And we see that from chapter 9. So in other words, he is causing these non-Israelites who live in the land to do forced labor. Well, what should we think of this? Is this supporting slavery? Well, part of the problem we have in any discussion is we hear certain terms and we imply into them our connotations. Now, if you hear the word slavery and you think of the capture and lifelong imprisonment, basically, of black people, what happened in the U.S., then no, that is not what it's talking about. See, Exodus 21, 6 is clear. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. The Bible is very clear that what happened in the United States in regards to slavery was wicked, horribly wicked. However, throughout history, there has been a type of slavery that was not for life, where a slave, even if they'd been taken in war, could one day purchase their freedom, where they had some rights. And often, they considered being a living slave better than being a dead soldier. We see this in the book of Joshua, where the Gibeonites come to Israel and deceive them so that they can be slaves. We'd rather be that than be dead. So am I up here trying to say slavery is morally right? Well, not at all. Let me just be clear. Not at all if in your mind is the conception you hear the word slavery and I'm talking about what happened in the U.S. Again, that should be condemned as evil as strongly as we can. However, if we have a historical concept of slavery throughout the world in which many wanted this over death and they had many freedoms, then that is a different matter. I'm not endorsing bringing that back, to be clear, but neither do I think we can condemn all forms of slavery in the past without understanding what it meant and what was implied by it. In fact, notice verse 14. Solomon allows these so-called slaves to work one month and then be home for two. If that's what slavery is, I think I might sign up, preach one month and be off for two. That's some pretty generous work conditions for these, put in quotes, slaves. 
This is, again, not what we think of when we think of slavery. But non, back to the passage here. He had other people from Israel, verse 15, 70,000 Israelites who were lifters of burden, who basically carry stuff around. And they also had 80,000 stone cutters or masons. And then they had to have 3,300 chiefs and officers who ruled over these workers. And these men were quarrying precious stones for the foundations of the temple. And so there's all these men, Solomon's, Hiram's, these men from Gebel, a people group to the north, who prepare the stone and the timber for the temple. So Solomon's administration, his organization, his delegation of this massive undertaking is happening because of the wisdom God gave him. And we don't always appreciate this type of administration. But when supply chains break down, we realize how important it is. It's one of those things we don't value until we don't have it. One example of this lack of mundane wisdom being costly was told by Dale Davis. It was the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, and the Israelites were trying to get back to the land, and they had taken a tribe, a village, to the west of Jerusalem, an important entryway, and they'd taken it, but then the Arabs regrouped and reattacked. They had 400 men to the Israelites' 70. And so they pushed the Jewish positions back. They drove the Jews from their trenches and through the buildings. And finally, they were almost on the outskirts of town. And yet the men had been fighting for about 24 hours, and they hadn't eaten. So the leader paused, and they had to send back to their village to get food. So then they eat, and they resume a second attack. But they'd given up some ground in this time, and it's going well until they realize they're almost out of ammunition. So they stop, and they send men back to go get more ammunition. And then they bring the third wave, and they've lost more ground to the Israelites again. And they're doing well until the leader gets shot. And yet they only have one medic and one first aid kit and no other leaders. And so they slowly withdraw, and the Israelites take the tribe, the village, back. Dale Davison notes, wisdom would have changed everything. Wisdom would have arranged for food, amassed ammunition, secured medical supplies, trained additional leadership. One can complain that wisdom involves such tedium of life. I suppose so. It all depends whether you want to win or lose. We need this wisdom, the wisdom that is able to look in the future and say, this is what needs to happen here, 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 and here, so we can achieve this great goal of here. It's the ability to look past the moment. It's the wisdom that says, when we go to the beach, we're going to need sunscreen. And you don't have 43 half-empty sunscreen bottles at home, and you get to the beach for the 44th time, and you go, oh, sunscreen, who would have thought? Never would have thought we need sunscreen here. And they sell it to you for $10 a tube, because lots of people forget till they get to the beach. It's the wisdom to look in the future and plan today so that you might achieve these great goals. And if you do, like Solomon, you will be a blessing to yourself. You'll be a blessing to others, and you can honor the Lord in it. And Solomon has this type of wisdom, and it blesses his people, and it leads to this beautiful temple being built for God. And yet this story kind of raises an important issue, one that we often don't consider until it's kind of pressed on us in a moment. And it comes in moments like this. 
a church has some extra money and they go, what should we do? And one person says, well, God cares about missions. And another person says, well, you know, we kind of have some broken windows. Oh, you materialist caring about the building. You know, you can hear people almost derisively saying, Solomon, don't you know you don't need a building to worship God? Solomon, don't you know that the poor in Israel could be using that money rather than dumping all those resources on unnecessary precious stones or Lebanese cedar? And a bad way to resolve this is, well, okay, yes, but that's, this is the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's about external things like buildings and outward forms, but we're a New Testament people. Well, that's not true. The Old Testament cared about worship from the heart as well. Psalm 51, 17, David says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Or Isaiah 29 condemns Israel for honoring God with their lips where their heart is far from him. A better way to resolve this is to realize that God desires that we honor him with everything. Yes, being sacrificial and generous in missions and also taking care of and beautifying the things that he has given us. We can get overly unbalanced in either direction. Yes, there are people who have built beautiful buildings, normally for themselves, in the name of God, while they don't care one cent about the poor. But we can be so concerned about the poor, which we should be, that we don't care about taking care of and making beautiful the things God has given us as a response to him. God desires beauty. Here, 1 Kings 6 and 7, we'll see in a couple weeks, 2 Chronicles 3, it tells of the temple having all this stuff that's unnecessary, but it makes it more beautiful. These items were not needed, but God desired them. We even see in the life of Jesus a desire to enjoy life. Jesus went to feast. Jesus gave the best wine at a wedding. Jesus tells us that in his kingdom, there will be a great wedding supper. And so Jerusalem was made beautiful. It was destroyed due to their sin, and God promises to make it beautiful again. You know, God deserves such praise and adoration that our response to him at times should look to the world around us as extravagant. To show this, turn to Mark chapter 14, and we'll end here looking at verses 3 through 9. There's this beautiful story in Mark 14. It's the Jesus final week, and he is mentally preparing to die. And in Mark 14, he goes and he's sitting, he's reclining as they did at their meals at the house of Simon the leper. We're going to read Mark 14, 2 through 9. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory 
of her. And so Jesus is lying here. And what happens is this woman comes and breaks what probably would have been a family heirloom, this alabaster oil, and pours it over him. Now it says it's worth 300 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage. So you take off one day a week, Sabbath, 52. 300 days, 300 denarii is a year's wage. So think of whatever you normally make in a year. What would you be willing to give that for? A whole year's wage. That's what this woman does. She comes and pours this gift in. Some of these people, oh, that's ridiculous. That's a waste. Why are you pouring that on Jesus? There's poor people. I mean, a year of any of our salary, that could help a lot of poor people. And yet Jesus doesn't say, you're right. This woman, why did you do this? He rebukes the people who are rebuking her. And not only that, he says what she's done is beautiful and it will be told throughout all the world as it's even told in a little town across the globe almost 2,000 years later of this beautiful thing she did for the Lord. So it may take many forms, but your service to God should be costly. And it may look like extravagance to others. Perhaps it's the amount of time you give to gather with Christians, to study God's word, to serve the church. Maybe it is the money you give to the poor. I'm not trying to discourage that. Or to missions or to some ministry. Possibly it's the talent you use. When you can make more money, you use them to serve others, for building God's kingdom. To each one of those, some people, sometimes even professing Christians will say, what a waste. You could do so much more if you did this, but you know you're doing it for the Lord. What we think is a waste of time and resources largely depends on what we value. If you don't think Jesus is worth very much, then you will say those things are a waste. However, the woman gave up a year's salary because she knew Jesus was worth it. What he was about to go do for her was worth more than a year. It was worth her life. Maybe not as extravagant as that, but does your life show that God is the most valuable thing? The Apostle Paul, as he's expounding on the reality of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we could find out today that the resurrection did not really happen and Christianity is a farce, could people say the life you've been living was a waste? Everything you've been living for has been worthless. Or would they say, well, your life isn't going to look that much different. Yeah, you won't go to service for an hour and a half on a Sunday. But besides that, your life's going to look exactly the same. Are we, like Solomon, using our best, our talents, our gifts, and all to give a beautiful sacrifice to God? And that sacrifice is not only buildings. It could be a sacrifice of service to others, a sacrifice of your time with others. And so Solomon here is calling all of us to make lavish preparations so that we we may... Serve the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy of our best. Lord, we often are lavish for ourselves. And so would you stir in us to see how great you are. Lord, may we 
be people who use all for you, knowing that you have sent your Son who gave his all for us. Lord, we love you and ask that you would continue to build your church in this time. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.